0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices. My name is Conor Matchett and I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Scotsman. In this limited podcast series, we are examining what might happen if Scotland becomes independent after a second independence referendum and whether we can learn anything from other countries who've gone down similar paths. Last time, we heard from experts about the prospect of a new border between England and Scotland after independence, how that might work and what we can learn from Northern Ireland. We often hear from Scottish politicians about a so-called democratic deficit facing Scotland and its voters. This is the idea that the votes of Scottish people in elections either do not really matter to those making decisions, or that they are made irrelevant or ignored by politicians. Most commonly, this is used by the SNP and other parties to describe what happens at Westminster, the heart of power across the United Kingdom. Independence, by comparison, is presented as the solution to this problem. Instead of their votes meaning nothing, an independent Scotland will see Scottish elections on Scottish matters, with Scottish decision makers on Scottish issues. But nothing is ever that simple, and an independent Scotland would face several questions about how it would organise its democracy. There is no guarantee that Scotland would keep the old Westminster system of first past the post, where a local candidate representing a defined area with the most votes represents that area in a parliament. Would Scotland even keep its hybrid additional member system used for the Holyrood elections, where voters get to vote for both a constituency representative and for a party in the regional list? Other countries who have experienced independence are often posed with the choice of picking systems that are broadly similar to their predecessor countries, or picking a brand new form of democracy and government. Alan Folds, who runs the independent electoral website Ballotbox Scotland, and who spoke to me from the garden lobby in the Scottish Parliament, explains.
1: When we're talking about countries that become independent from the UK, in the context of Scotland, the comparator there is the fact that they have become independent in recent years and therefore had an opportunity to sort of think about how they were governed. It's very much not a comparison of suggestion that Scotland is a colony, you know, Scotland absolutely not a colony, nothing like it. Quite offensive actually to suggest that be the case. So just to be clear, we're going to be talking about former colonies without suggesting that Scotland is one. It was a very enthusiastic partner in the British Empire and its various sort of heinous crimes, which is why, for example, very famous musical Hamilton is about Alexander Hamilton, founding father of the United States, Scotsman. First Prime Minister of Canada, John A. Macdonald, born in Glasgow. So that's, that's not what the comparator is, but it is useful in terms of looking at what they've done. And there are kind of, rather than sort of specific individual countries, there are sort of three broad blocks, sort of groups of of how things have been done that you can sort of look at. And the first one would be to think of the UK's former African colonies. And those are the ones that have ended up as independent countries with a much, much bigger difference in how they do politics than um, the UK. So not only did they become republics very quickly after independence, so they got rid of the monarchy, replaced that with a president, but they became presidential republics. So that president is a very powerful figure, much like the US, that's the person who's ultimately in charge of the country. Um, some some exceptions there, so for example South Africa is basically a parliamentary system they just call their head a president, but by and large that's the situation. The second block you could think of are the South Asian, uh, former South Asian colonies, so India, Pakistan, Bangladesh so that became independent of Pakistan rather than directly the UK. Those are kind of sort of middle ground where very quickly after independence again they became republics, but they basically just slotted a president in where the monarchy used to be, so the, the Indian president fulfills a role Basically equivalent to what the Queen does here. No real political power. That power is held by a Prime Minister who's very strong, backed by a Westminster-style parliament, elected via first-past-the-post. Quite similar to what we have here, but just with a president at the top rather than a monarch. Again, exception there, Sri Lanka. It's a semi-presidential system, so it's kind of in the middle of the two, but otherwise quite similar. The third and final block are the countries that are still most similar in how they're sort of run to the UK. So that's the Caribbean countries and then Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Parliamentary democracies still have the monarch as head of state and still use sort of Westminster style systems of governance. Again exceptions there, Trinidad and Tobago um, and the Caribbean became a republic pretty quickly. Barbados, you might remember, became one very recently just mm. at the end of last year and in fact a lot of Caribbean countries are going to think is now the time to sort of make that break. So we might see a lot more of those dropping. But basically those are sort of the three from sort of African countries being very different South Asian countries being sort of in the middle, and then the Caribbean and the sort of former dominions, they're called. Those countries being pretty, pretty similar to what the UK has now.
0: Scotland, as Alan states, is not a colony, and therefore will face a different type of decision from former colonies across the British Empire. The question is, therefore, which countries are most similar to Scotland and offer the best potential lessons?
1: Probably the best comparator is always culturally going to be your Canada, Australia, New Zealand, just because a lot of people in the UK would feel and Scotland would feel the closest affinity to those countries. Just because, being frank, those are the countries that the UK was most successful in displacing the native inhabitants and sort of replacing them with settlers and, and forming governments. So there's a a bit of a, a sort of sense that these are sort of you know, white settler majority countries where we often have quite strong connections because our families very, very often are the ones going across it and forming those countries. So they're, they're the easiest ones to compare to. Also, especially in the case of, for example, New Zealand, it's a sort of Small, not, not too small, but similar size to Scotland, so it's a sort of useful comparator mm. in that sense. Whereas when you're talking about things like, for example, India, eh, much less helpful, absolutely massive country, one of the biggest populations on the planet, very, very diverse, huge linguistic, ethnic diversity across, which is why it's a, a federation with multiple states, whereas Scotland, pretty small, pretty ethnically homogenous, not a, not a huge degree of diversity the way that there is there.
0: Let's take a closer look at New Zealand. Lara Greaves is a Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at the University of Auckland.
2: Māori discovered New Zealand um, probably about 800 years ago. So a series of waka Māori came from the Pacific Islands, um, settled in Aotearoa, New Zealand. A few hundred years after that, Europeans found New Zealand and we went through a process of colonisation in 1835. A group of northern chiefs got together and declared sovereignty in this thing called Hewhakaputanga, which was sort of an agreement to establish New Zealand and to seek sort of the, the guardianship of the, the King of England to be the, it's, it's along the side long lines of the protector of our infant state, is the wording um, in Te Reo Māori, the Māori language. And from there, there was 1835. From there, five years later, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed, which was our is really widely regarded as our founding doc- document. And that consists of like a few articles. Um, the first article kind of talks about there being a governor in Aotearoa. And that's what Māori thought would happen, that there would be a governor, like a governor general would come here and kind of make sure that the Europeans were behaving and <laughs> make sure that the, the, the British immigrants were behaving. And the second article talks about Māori sovereignty and ownership and control. But basically there were two versions. They were not very well translated and there's been a lot of harm that's come from that over the years, but that those documents kind of established our state. In
0: 1846, the Westminster style of government was imposed on the New Zealanders. This saw two chambers established and a first-past-the-post system used at elections, mirroring the process in London. During this period, New Zealand was described as having the purest form of Westminster government, as of today, the Queen is still represented in the country by a governor-general, with the monarch remaining the head of state. The major change for New Zealand, however, came with a switch of voting system. This happened almost by accident. Lara Greaves explains.
2: We had First Past the Post, which was a series of, at one point, I think they got to 99 electorates throughout the country, geographically divided just kind of that, that classic system. And then in the 1980s, there was a Royal Commission, the 1986 Royal Commission into the electoral system, and they made a number of recommendations. Basically, it was what was happening is a lot of minor parties were getting even sort of 20% of the vote in the 1978 election and not getting like, getting one representative or pretty much getting no one. And so that, that caused a lot of fuss. We had a couple of instances where the party who got the most votes didn't win, which was kind of strange just because of the way that people were kind of clustered in in urban areas so it just that was it was just kind of bizarre that we were having those situations so there's a bit of public disquiet we had the royal commission and then after that the prime minister david longy misspoke and promised a referendum and so this whole idea of oh we should have a referendum kind of went forward and we had a series of referendums um over the early 90s before instituting the mixed member proportional system in 1996. We've kind of had this evolving system over time. That move towards MMP was quite a a significant one for our political system and probably for our independence.
0: The MMP system will sound very familiar to Scots with voters getting two votes, one for a constituency representative and one for a party, with the final tally of representatives calculated proportionally to overall support.
2: Under MMP, what happened was suddenly we had this explosion of smaller parties. So we had smaller parties that could get up to sort of 20% of the vote, just but also just this crowded marketplace of ideas. Because suddenly everyone was like, oh MMP, like we can we can actually run a party, have a party, and that party can be successful. So we saw that. We saw this kind of evolving model of coalition governments as well. Because what happened was, instead of oh election night, it's our centre left party, Labour, or our centre right party, National. Instead of that, it became a matter of oh we've got election night, then we have to go and figure out which parties we're going to negotiate with. And we even had in the twenty seventeen election that we're we'll Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern ended up being coming Prime Minister. In the twenty seventeen election, the, the party that won the most votes didn't end up forming the government. So we've had a bit of like mixed experience around that and it's who thinks that's a good idea and not a good idea and all that so it was another real significant change to our sort of policy and governance was that these parties suddenly have to work together one of the good things that people argue about MMP is that it becomes a really good protective measure on our parliament and on our executive because we we have one house and we have three yearly elections so, people argue that we do not have a lot of protections around any kind of tyrant or anything along those lines. So, I guess that's where having the Queen as our head of state, that she serves as that protection there. So, MMP is meant to be another protection along the way there. That MMP, the larger party, has to pair with some smaller parties, one or more. And that means that if they were to do something bad, that smaller party would just pull their support. The party would no longer have confidence of the House and an election would be called. So that's kind of meant to be a protective measure in a way, there as well.
0: To an extent, New Zealand's approach is an outlier when it comes to the approach of former British colonies. Their nearest neighbour, Australia, is another which has taken a slightly different approach to simply replicating the Westminster model. Here's Alan Foulds to explain.
1: Another country we can look at in terms of doing things differently would then be Australia. So Australia, as sort of given earlier, is one of those countries that broadly was mostly similar to the UK. But it does actually have some quite substantial differences. First of all, it is a major user of preferential systems of voting. So it's the only country in the world that uses the alternative vote, which we voted, for in voted on in the UK in 2011, not a form of PR. It's the only country that uses that as its kind of default voting system. And that arose not out of any sort of real democratic desire. People like, oh, do you know what? We should change the voting system because wouldn't that be better? It arose because... In sort of the early days of the Australian Federation, the Labor Party, much like the rest of sort of the rest world, was growing quite strong. Was beginning to win places, and there were two conservative parties, and first past the post was sort of leading them to split their votes, mm. and they were distinct enough that they didn't want to merge into one formal party, but they also didn't want Labor to win seats. What did they do? They introduced the alternative vote in the hopes that that would help you know make sure that they would beat seats beat Labor in those seats where you know, they wouldn't really split their vote. They also then introduced the single transferable vote, which people in Scotland were reasonably familiar with. For council elections, they implemented that in their upper chamber, in their senate and they did that in large part because the senate, but that came a, a good few decades later and that was because the senate was sort of elected by kind of block voting, so it ended up in a situation where you were, it was very common to have basically Labour in complete control of the senate, like when I not a majority, like almost all of the seats and then the next election it would swing and um, the the sort of the coalition of right wing parties would be in complete control of the Senate and they began to go actually hang on that is a bit ridiculous so they brought in a form of PR and now the Senate is much more sort of moderate well the small you see the 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 Greens the the coalition of the right wing parties and Labour have representation in every in every state so it's a, a bit fairer they're also an interesting one in terms of like thinking about questions that we've sort of will discuss at other points about a second chamber and that Australia is a federation so it's got a second chamber on the uh, American model. Where it's an equal representation for all of the states, and also where it's very very powerful, and this is where like there's an interesting where because it's elected differently to the lower chamber, it's not a rubber stamp body because the lower chamber is not proportional. To the upper chamber it is, but also because it's really powerful, like it's one of very few like the House of Lords can't stop a budget. The Senate can stop a budget. So it has led to a complete change in how Australia does politics because even though it still tends to have these big majority governments and that are elected in the lower house, they always have to do a bit of cross-party working in the Senate with what is at the moment now going to be mostly the Greens and a couple of sort of, sort of climate-minded independents. In the past, before they sort of reformed it, like all kinds of weird parties like um, the Australian Motoring Enthusiasts Party genuinely want a seat in the Senate once. Absolutely bizarre. So they had to do sort of this kind of cross-party working. So it, it's an interesting one where it's, it's very similar to the UK and it still follows that Westminster model. We've got a big single-party majority government and thinks it can do whatever it wants. But actually behind the scenes... Elections are different. The Senate is different, so it has led to quite a different way of doing politics.
0: For many in the Caribbean, however, their political systems inherited the Westminster approach. Years later, now there is little incentive to change. Alan explains.
1: Most of the world's democracies use forms of PR. Like that is the normal form of voting systems. But two-thirds, about two-to-one ratio of countries using PR. Most of the ones that don't are former. British colonies, Mm -hmm. kind of, they've inherited the British voting system, and that is not unique to former British colonies. France has just had its parliamentary elections, it uses a two-round system, it's one of very, very few countries in the world that uses a two-round system. Who are the countries that mostly use this system as well? Former French colonies. So the UK is kind of, it's not the worst crime of the UK, of the British Empire, to give a bunch of countries rubbish voting systems, but it's, it's, it's certainly up there. And in sort of the Caribbean countries, because... They're so small, and they don't have the same kind of demographic differences that you have in the UK or in Scotland, where you know that it's not just that people who live in city centres think differently to people who live in rural areas. It's they're actually different people. You know, a city centre population is going to be younger. It's going to be more diverse ethnically. It's going to have. Um, it's going to be in in lower paid, less affluent jobs like that kind of thing you don't have that as much in these small Caribbean island nations, much more sort of even spread across the place. So what you find is that first past the post ends up giving them these governments consistently where you end up with one party winning all of the seats in parliament. And it's not that they're one party states, they've got opposition parties, it's not that they're authoritarian regimes where the opposition are for sure, like governments, they're full democracies, government change regularly. It's just because they're so small, and so like the, the diversity, the demographic diversity isn't there, that you just end up with one party winning all the time. Now, that's not Great, is it? To have like a, a one party, I think Granada's got elections this year and they've got a 15-seat parliament, every single seat is held by the governing party. Now that governing party could be replaced, but it's very easy to see why countries don't reform and replace first past the post. And the way that you in New Zealand is it had to have like unique circumstances. Because well, if you've got 15 of the seats in parliament, all 15 seats, and you get 60% of the vote and your opposition got 40%. You're not going to bring forward a bill to say, well, we should only have nine seats and they should get six. Like, none of your MPs are going to vote to make, not just their colleagues, out of a job. Potentially, they could be one of the six that loses out. So there's this, like, incentive for governing parties where they don't want to replace a bad voting system. Because, sure, there are times when they're going to have no seats or very few seats, similar to the UK, you end up, like, underrepresented. But the times when they do win, when they do have the seats, they get such complete power that why would they give that up? So you can kind of see how these things, even where countries have sort of had an opportunity of becoming independent to look at how they do things, things have just stayed the same because why would you change when you benefit so much from power? On the other hand, the other thing they've inherited from the UK is that most of these Caribbean nations have upper chambers, so they've got a Senate, and most of them operate on roughly the same basis, which is that the government appoints most of the members but the leader of the opposition gets to point a few. And what that means is that often the Senate has more opposition members than the lower chamber of Parliament does, because at least they've been able to point a handful. It almost sort of counterbalances that problem. It's like, OK, well, the, the lower chamber might not be fully representative, but at least there's a bit of representation in the upper chamber. And although they're very small nations and smaller nations tend not to have upper chambers, that almost becomes the way that those upper chambers can be justified. They continue using like a, a two-chamber system because at least it's giving the opposition a voice that first-past-the-post does, and it does so in a way that's relatively low risk for whoever happens with the government at the time. So that's perhaps how, how these countries have ended up with this kind of sort of very similar to the UK system and haven't really wanted to move away from it because there's no political incentive for the parties to do so, and they've kind of got a way of balancing it out that seems to work for people.
0: There is also no serious demand for huge change, often due to people simply being used to their existing systems.
1: So it's kind of the same as the UK, where like, of course we do have like, various movements for PR here, and you will see them talked about, and you will see polls. Polls I had commissioned, for example, show that most people want PR.
0: One debate within the pro-independence supporters is whether an independent Scotland should have a second chamber. The House of Lords, so often a symbol of ridicule and of a long-gone, feudalistic United Kingdom, would not exist in Scotland after independence, and any second chamber would have to be created by the new state. In New Zealand, a second chamber existed before it was later dissolved. Lara Greaves describes the decision.
2: In the 1950s, in 1950, 1951, we actually disestablished our upper house and generally it was because our upper house was thought to be not very useful at all and really doing much. And then in the 1950s, I think various people thought we'd reestablish it, like making it up of a different way and that just never really happened. So at the time, the the, governments, the government and the, and the upper party just decided that what they would do was kind of, Put entrenched certain facets of the Electoral Act, which meant that people couldn't kind of go tyrannical and then that would kind of protect or be a limit on power. So that's what we ended up going for there. From time to time, people discussed the idea of an upper house. Generally, the way an upper house is really discussed in New Zealand is this idea that we'd have a Maori upper house. There was this kind of look into our constitution that was the various sort of tribal leaders came together and, and had this this thing called Mātiki a series of meetings and this large document where they have argued for this idea that we should bring in an upper house that's elected or kind of brought from various tribes nominating them of Maori. So that's kind of an interesting or kind of the only way that upper house ever really comes up because people tend to hate politicians. That's not like a a New Zealand specific thing. People don't want more politicians. And we've even had a referendum where that one in the late 90s or so it was, that actually people want to keep the number of, politicians I think it was at, at 99 100 and that was one of the big arguments against adopting the MMP system so getting more politicians is incredibly unpopular so I think that's that thing as if if someone ever does have an upper house you kind of don't want to get rid of them because it's so hard to get them back again even when there'll be people arguing to say you do need more representatives it's just not politically palatable thing to do to bring in more MPs or senators or anything along those lines.
0: Alan Foulds argues, the question of a second chamber is probably the toughest one for an independent Scotland to face.
1: I think people tend to think of the idea of a second chamber as it's good to have some further scrutiny of what Parliament's doing. But as we were talking about earlier with, for example, the, 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 the situation of New Zealand, their second chamber wasn't doing that, it was just a rubber stamp body. And the House of Lords is a revising chamber. I mean, the House of Lords isn't a revising chamber. The clue's in the name, is the House of Lords. It's the, the, the body that's meant to represent the landed aristocracy. Now, okay, over the course of the 20th century, the landed aristocracy became a very small component of the Lords, but fundamentally that's what it's still there for. And we passed the Parliament Act 1911, 111 years ago, and it basically says at the start of it, look, we're going to limit the powers of the House of Lords, but that's a temporary measure until we have a democratically elected second chamber. The scrutiny thing is not a strong argument to me. And... If we are going to have a second chamber, as far as I'm concerned, the only basis for having a, a legislative chamber, whether upper or lower, is a democratic one. And that can either be a direct election, so people directly vote for the chamber, or it can be indirect, so there's some kind of appointment process that is relying on other elections. If it's responsive to voters, and if we're having elections, as far as I'm concerned, the only fair way to do that is PR, you end up with a body that's makeup is basically just the same as the lower chamber. And if the makeup is just the same as the lower chamber... It just becomes a rubber stamp body. And what's the point of having a body that you're calling a revising chamber when it's just rubber stamping what the lower chamber Mm -hmm. is doing? So it's actually quite difficult. And a lot of other countries that have upper chambers, they have some other basis for them. So I said in the Caribbean, for example, they're kind of ways of giving the opposition a bit more power than first pass post gifts in the lower house. In places like uh, Australia, it's because they're a federation, so it's representing the states. In Canada, it's the same, it's representing the provinces, because it's a federation. Well, Scotland's a small, homogenous country, like, so we, don't, we wouldn't be a federation. We're not, we have no states to represent. We don't, we don't have too much diversity internally within ourselves. Um, so some places that aren't federations have that kind of diversity. Like, OK, it's still good to have an upper chamber um, that reflects some of the diversity. Like, it's very hard to see how we have an upper chamber that is both democratically legitimate, and then isn't in that circumstance just just rubber stamping the lower chamber? So, yeah, that's the one where people, people really like to talk about it, but that's the one I see as the hardest possible change, because what really is the rationale beyond thinking, hmm, don't we want to limit the power of government? And yes, we should always want to limit the power of government. That's a, a fundamentally important thing. But in a small country like Scotland, I don't think a second chamber's the best way to do that and isn't a particularly
0: likely one to do that. But what about the head of state? It is no secret that mainstream nationalism in Scotland tends to be more Republican in nature than its unionist counterpart. The question of whether Scotland would retain the monarch as the head of state, post-independence therefore, may well concern some leaning yes. In New Zealand, the monarch remains the head of state, and as Lara Greaves explains, Republicanism has rumbled on in the background, rather than becoming a driving political force in the country.
2: Republicanism in New Zealand's been quite interesting. We've never been as extreme as Australia on it. So Australia with the Gough Whitlam and the disestablishing of parliament and all of that that happened. Australia had a referendum where Republicanism ultimately lost, which naturally anything Australia does, New Zealand thinks about it because we're so close geographically they're just there. Actually, a lot of us have family there. Like, they're just there. Like, we say we use the term across the ditch, that they're just across literally like some kind of ditch. But so we always look to Australia as like an older cousin or sibling or something along those lines. And so we've dabbled in the idea of republicanism. The arguments were stronger a few years ago. There was sort of a monarchy in New Zealand and a republican in New Zealand, and they would have more arguments. And we haven't really heard from them in recent years. People tend to say we haven't heard from them in recent years because of the sort of like Prince William, Prince Harry effect and like, you know, all the glamour and the royal tours and all those sorts of things. But I think probably the reality is, is the public kind of just don't know that much about our constitution and don't think about it a lot. We don't have civics education in schools. We've Got a new New Zealand history curriculum coming in in the next year or two because, actually, in a way, that's part of our independence as well as learning our own histories. And we don't learn our own histories unless the school teacher just really loves it. We've been learning European histories and British histories, so that's not, and American histories, so that's not been particularly good for our constitutional conversations, I have to say. I think the republicanism in New Zealand tends to poll, you know, it's close. Like if we did have a referendum, it would be close, I think. Um, at the moment. I think it would come down to what the model, the alternative model that would be proposed would be. What we've seen over time as well as our Governor-General evolve into potentially a more political figure. So we've currently got this Professor Dame Cindy Kiro who's Māori and English descent and she was a former Children's Commissioner in a, a previous sort of academic and talked a lot about inequality. And so she has been viewed as quite a political choice for Governor-General, and she might be someone where we could argue that the role is starting to move maybe more towards a symbolic presidential role. So that's, I'd say that, yeah, the Governor-General's role has definitely, is, is evolving over time and has evolved away from them being such a neutral figure. So that's probably somewhere to watch in the next sort of decade or so in New Zealand. Our political leaders... Like Jacinda Ardern has said before that she expects that we'll become a republic sometime in her lifetime, but she's also not going to do anything about it. So a lot of them have kind of, I think a lot of our politicians recently are kind of thinking that we'll go in that direction, but no one, it's not anything where there's really energy behind it in in public sentiment.
0: But does a monarch from the other side of the country impact a country's sense of independence, and what is the impact on Indigenous people?
2: I would say that the idea that the head of state is the British monarch actually does actually confuse a lot of undergraduate students and actually just people generally when you talk to them. Because I think that it's that fun thing where New Zealand likes to think of itself as one of those places where everyone gets a fair go and everyone can kind of grow up and be who they want to be and, and live their best life and part of that is the the fact that the head of state's not a new zealander it can never be a new zealander i think that that arguments put forth a lot as something that kind of concerns people and people find unjust because if we also then take an indigenous rights perspective as well we can't have a maori head of state the governor general's maori but we can't have a maori head of state and a lot of maori have 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 struggled with that but people generally i think find it strange that their child could never be the head of state (laughs) and that's but they're not actively thinking about it I think that that's until I, I suspect that we would need to have some kind of scandal or situation where maybe the governor general and the queen had to interfere before we would really be talking and thinking about it in the public
0: What about elsewhere in countries formerly part of the British Empire and still part of the Commonwealth? Scotland
1: is not a colony and the situation is very different. I think the sort of question of becoming a republic or not is where that is clearest. So when we talk about becoming a republic in a Scottish context or in a wider UK context, because of course this is that we can have that, we can do that as part of the United Kingdom. There's supposed to be United Republic in that case. It's very much a, a basic sort of one of a democratic principle of you know do we think in the twenty-first century we should have a hereditary figure as our head of state? It's purely a matter of democracy and whether you like the monarchy or not. And I don't think it would surprise any any followers of ballot box Scotland given my fondness for fair and representative voting systems that I. I don't think an unelected to monarch is a great thing. Whether you like them or not, the monarch is very much part of Scotland and the UK's history and story. They are our monarch. You know, the UK only exists because a Scottish monarch, James VI, inherited the English throne. It took another 100 years after that to actually form the political union, but that was kind of the thing. And that is very different to the, former, the UK's former colonies, where if you think of especially India, especially the former African colonies... Continuing to have the monarchy and continuing to have the British monarchy at the head of their country as their head of state after independence was just unthinkable. Because that wasn't them just like, oh, this is part of our history. Like, no, this was a symbol of foreign oppression that this foreign country had come along and installed and went, ah, yes, you know, um, India now belongs to the Queen, like, which is obviously a ridiculous idea. Like, oh, it's about that, that old is are blind. You can't claim us. We live here. Like, <laughs> like, of course, that was ridiculous. So they had a much bigger incentive to break with the monarchy and to bring in, whether it was a presidential system where the president has power or... Parliamentary Republic with the presence of figurehead like the Queen. Either way, they're like, look, if we're going to have a figurehead, it's going to be our figurehead. Why on earth would it be your figurehead? That's just bizarre. So that that incentive is very different for Scotland than it is for those former colonies, because we don't have that same sense of breaking with something that's a foreign imposition. Again, very much not a foreign imposition. This is is our own. It is very much native to the country.
0: For Scotland, however, it feels likely that it would retain the Queen as head of state even if it became independent.
1: I think that discussion about uh, about a republic is kind of... It's ongoing at the moment, as the Queen at the moment gets on a bit. We're beginning to see some more of that discussion about should the UK as it stands be a republic? I think the public are further ahead of that than many politicians are. A lot of politicians who themselves support the republic perhaps not so keen to say that in public because politicians who support the monarchy seem to present it as like the most beyond the pale policy you could possibly have. It's like, well hang on a minute, most of the most of the democracies we are friends with don't have monarchs. Like are you really suggesting it's like sheer evil to to support a republic? It's a bit strange, but yeah it's a discussion that's happening now and I think we'll probably sort of pick up the pace in sort of the the continuous sort of twilight years of the current monarch. Um, But certainly it would be one of the things I think would end up top of the agenda if Scotland did vote for independence, because the SNP have been very sort of softly, softly, very cautious on on that as a sort of their don't scare the horses approach. And the Greens, of course, have very much been, hey, independence is a great opportunity for us to do things like get rid of the monarchy. That would be fun, wouldn't it? So that could be one where we might not see ructions before a vote, but after a vote, as sort of there's a discussion on your know, setting up an independent Scotland's constitution, that's where you might see sort of more more sort of explicit and public divisions between folk on the pro-independence side as to, to what we do vis-a-vis the public.
0: Other countries which have experienced independence often come from other types of democratic systems, and some from unions where democracy simply did not exist. Montenegro, formerly part of Yugoslavia and later the Union of Serbia and Montenegro, now has a president elected every five years alongside a single chamber parliament with MPs elected through proportional representation. This is a far cry from the one-party state of the Soviet Union. Milena Besic is the director of the Centre for Democracy and Human Rights based in the Montenegrin capital of Podgorica. She describes... How Montenegro's own democratic systems began as it developed after communism and after it became independent following its referendum in 2006. We
3: are still facing the recidives of the one party system because the communism period was like uh, very long. Before the communism, Montenegro was a uh, monarchy, and then the, the parliamentarism was, let's say, introduced. On through the socialism and one uh, political party, communist, uh, communist party, in you know, whole Yugoslavia, and after the nineties, so we have to see that twenty years after the democratic culture and political pluralism was still, let's say, something newly introduced. And simply the change, even in that Yugoslavia and joint Yugoslavia consisted only of Serbia and Montenegro. Uh, Montenegro has, as the Republic, its own parliament. So we already had our own parliament. And then uh, it was not so, let's say, huge difference once when we got, again, the independence. That formal independence was really something that we uh, got, like, gradually It it was not something sudden and it it was not like cut. It was simply formalized something which was already in place somehow. And uh, this is why it was not like something stressful, something harmful, something that only positive effects you could notice.
0: Milena also describes Montenegro's independence as a missed opportunity when it comes to democracy. She argues that the country should have used independence as an opportunity to radically reform Montenegro systems to be more citizen-focused.
3: After the elections in August 2020, when we changed the ruling party, we asked our citizens again, because the issue in the public sphere, again, somehow raise the narrative about independence of Montenegro and the status of Montenegro. Like, okay, now we got the pro-Serbian or the oriented parties on power. Now, whether someone will question the uh, referendum or something. They try to put this narrative, but they are very aware that more than 80% of our citizens wouldn't uh, vote uh, for union with Serbia. And this is something which is not an issue anymore for so many years. But uh, when I talk about these uh, chances that we missed to uh, develop our democracy, it's not in relation with the status of independent status, but in terms of what could be done better. Of course, that we created a political environment where the political structures are more mature and that they're uh, oriented more towards the interests of citizens. But we are still running the politics on a very old fashioned way by dividing the uh, population on ideological issues like ethnicity, like church. This is where our society is getting more and more and deeply and deeply divided society. And this is the main issue.
0: This period of reform is now mostly focused towards joining the European Union, a key goal for Montenegro and its political elite. However, Milena explains, EU membership should not be the sole goal.
3: We were hoping that process of uh, European integration will somehow bring the really important topics on the table, and they are on the table. But only technically. So some structures are negotiating and theoretically all the governments are devoted to the process of uh, EU integration. But in the field, what we are facing is quite opposite. We're having more and more corruption. We are having more and more untransparent uh, decision-making processes. We are having more and more uh, political influence on institutions that should be free and independent. So, especially when it comes to rule of law, where we had to have the main reform and uh, completely independent judiciary. So that's why the chapter 23 and 24 are still the main issues when it comes to reform Montenegro. Of course, that the European integration is the main goal, but not... By my opinion, the goal is to, to to raise the standards and then the integration will be like just some kind of uh, logical step forward. The main interest of this society is getting uh, those standards, not only economical standards and uh, quality of life, but really, really in all possible. So, more uh, freedoms, less discrimination, less hate speech, uh, more transparency in decision-making, uh, more political participation. So, this is something that we can easily achieve because of the size of the population, but there's no enough political will.
0: The picture for a future independent Scotland is a complex one, and it should not be assumed that it will simply follow the old Westminster system. Alan folds is back to give his expert view on what is the most likely scenario for an independent Scotland
1: purely on speculation, my my assumption on a day one, let's imagine for argument's sake, and obviously this is a very open question, let's imagine for argument's sake there is a referendum next year, let's imagine again, so we've got two steps of imagination here, let's imagine it as a vote in favour, and that goes ahead a couple of years time. Scotland becomes independent. In that scenario, what I can kind of see is that Holyrood continues on roughly as is, same voting system, probably continues on without a second chamber, and probably continues on with any sort of personal union with the rest of the UK. So same as a lot in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Caribbean countries, that the Queen remains head of state. In the longer term... I think some of those things are more likely to change. So I think the voting system, probably not so much. It's going to be some form of PR. Everyone who supports independence basically supports uh, PR. And certainly in a, an independent Scotland, you would imagine that the, what would, I suppose, be the, the formerly pro-union parties, and there'd probably be a big realignment. That's that's actually not a, not a thing about sort of our democratic structures, but something to watch for would be a massive realignment in who the political parties were mm. if they weren't sort of having to the SNP's massive broad church being bound together by independence and similarly, you know, like the Labour left and Labour right not necessarily having to work together so much, that kind of thing. Beyond that change, I think we might then start to discuss the issue of a republic. That's a longer term thing, again, probably in the base of you know, when the current monarch passes.
0: What is almost certain to change is the political makeup of Scotland. Without the SNP having a binding vision for Scotland through a drive for independence that brings their broad church together, the country could witness a revolution, similar to that seen in New Zealand with the advent of MMP. Alan explains.
1: I suppose the examples for that aren't so much the examples of former British colonies, But the obvious ones would be the the former communist states of Europe, where, of course, you had this all-powerful, all-dominant single-party or, you know, like, popular front where they had, you know, subservient parties that didn't really have any meaningful independence. And those countries obviously went from having single-party dominance to then, obviously, completely different multi-party democracies. And often in cases, actually, if you think of, for example, the likes of Lithuania, the party that formed the initial government, were these also kind of, like, these broad coalitions of sort of opposition forces that wanted democracy wanted independence and then you get a couple of elections in and that justification is no longer there because the country's independent so these are obviously very different circumstances of going from a non-democratic society to a democratic one and Scotland, would be going from democracy to democracy but there are perhaps some parallels there in terms of thinking well once the thing that binds together the movement for independence goes away there's going to be change if we go back to new zealand obviously when they adopted pr that came very very long after they'd become independent it nonetheless did show a really substantial change in their politics like it's still the case that labor and national are the two big parties but in between that election in 1993 where they voted in a referendum that they definitely wanted pr but they also did it at the same time as voting for the last ever first past the post parliament in that parliament the two big parties national and labor we're just constantly losing members because those members were splitting off and forming their own new parties. And going, well, we're going to form a party that's to the left of Labour because now we have the freedom to do that. Mm. And you're probably well, we're going to form a party that's uh, to the right of the nationals because we can do that now. And those parties were initially sort of represented in Parliament mm. and they've kind of now sort of narrowed back down to you've got those two big parties and then you've got the Greens who have a sort of capture a lot of the left of Labour energy and you've got ACT, the Association of like... Consumers and taxpayers, which captured a lot of, sort of the right-wing energy from national. So you did have that kind of realignment. It was really, really dramatic at first. And I expect that if Scotland were to vote for independence, we'd see something similar in that sense of really dramatic realignments. Of, You can think of folk in the SNP who wouldn't necessarily be out of place in the Conservatives were it not for independence. If Scotland to vote for independence and that dividing line is removed, you might see some interesting movement between parties. And again, similar to the SNP and Labour, I think. I'm not the first political commentator, I'm not the last to say that there's not really meaningfully that much between them beyond the fact that governments feel constrained and oppositions have blue-sky thinking. Again, you might see that some of the sort of phony war between people who otherwise agree on everything, that might lead to forming a new party. So that, that, to me, is kind of like the most fascinating hypothetical is what on earth happens to our political parties? You know, are we going to see Anna Sarwa and Nicola Sturgeon? Are, we, are they going to be in the same political party Like if, if Scotland becomes independent, Because that could happen. Are we going to see Fergus Ewing and Douglas Ross in the same political party? Like that kind of stuff would be really interesting, but it's also important to our democracy, but it's, it's not a structural thing and it's hard to predict ahead of time. It would be fascinating. All of these things always are.
0: The question of how our democratic systems would work in an independent Scotland is a very live one. However, whether voters will demand certainty on voting systems or on the head of state is not clear and it's possible that Scotland will merely continue on using the same system it has had in place for decades. These decisions, however, do have consequences and independence could be an opportunity to radically rethink Scottish democracy. But it could also lead to the wrong decisions being made to the detriment of citizens. Next week on How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices, we discuss one of the biggest questions posed by the 2014 independence referendum, currency. You can find out more about this series each week in Saturday's edition of The Scotsman and online at scotsman.com. How to Be an Independent Country, Scotland's Choices is produced and hosted by me, Connor Matchett, and edited by Kelly Crichton.